In the name of God who loves us, who once walked among us, and who spurs us ever on. Amen. Please be seated. It was the great biblical scholar, the Roman Catholic, Raymond Brown, who once said, if Paul is to be called an apostle, then John is to be called a theologian. Now, we are in the midst of John's gospel, and throughout Holy Week we'll be reading, continue to read from John's gospel. So I thought it was appropriate to spend some time this morning talking about theology, at least from the perspective of John's gospel. So we're going to go into that very dangerous area of theology this morning. We're going to talk specifically about penal substitutionary atonement. Now, before you cover your children's ears, it has nothing to do with an email that may have got through your spam filter. Nothing. But first, you just got that, didn't you, Laura? <laughs> it's so gratifying. Sir, first, let me tell you a story. This came to me this week while I was, while I was thinking about this, and it was just so fresh. I was seven. Seven. And um, it was time for me to receive my first communion in the Roman Catholic Church. So, of course, many of you know, before you receive your communion, one has to go to their first confession. So I was gearing myself up to go to confession at age seven. And, of course, I had been told that I had to, to tell the priest all my sins, and that I, then I would get an absolution, and then I would be, my soul would be washed clean so that I could then go to communion um, with a clean soul. So I remember several of us out on the playground um, the day before we were going to confession were talking about the sins that we had committed that we needed to tell the priest in the confessional. And I came up with nothing. I mean, I had no sins. <laughs> I was seven years old. I mean, come on. I was a good little boy. I really was. So we all came up with some, some sort of generic sins. I had lied to my parents. I never lied to my parents. And I, had had, and I had fought with my sister. Now, my sister was three years older than I was and twice my size, and I was smart enough at seven to not to pick a fight with my 10-year-old sister, believe me. But these sounded good. They weren't true, but they sounded good. So I sat in line on the bench waiting to go into the confessional. I went into the confessional, and there was this lovely man, this lovely priest, bored out of his skull without a doubt, sitting on the other side of, of, the, of the screen, and I, and I confessed my sins, that I had lied to my parents and that I had fought with my older sister. And he passed me absolution on me. And as I was walking through the door to leave the confession, I realized, oh, my God, I sinned. I lied to the priest. <laughs> I lied to the priest about lying to my parents, which never really happened. And then, and then I walked by the altar with my head down, and I realized tomorrow I have to receive communion having a sin on my soul. I will spend forever in hell because of my first communion. True story, true story. But it's the way it was. I mean, it's, it's the way I was brought up, and maybe, maybe kind of it was the way you were brought up too. That sense of punishment and sin. So... A couple of weeks ago, um, it was, um, uh, what's his name? He came to speak to the, to the, the clergy. McLaren, Brian McLaren came to, to talk to the clergy. And, and I want to read you something that Brian McLaren said about this kind of feeling from a different perspective. 
For me, McLaren wrote, growing up evangelical meant growing up believing that the gospel was the theory of penal substitutionary atonement. Trusting Christ, accepting Christ, getting saved, being born again, all meant covertly or overtly accepting the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Namely, that God's justice requires that we all be sent to hell forever, but that God punished his perfect son, Jesus, in our place, which means that we can go to heaven. That's the version of the gospel that was broadcast 24-7 on radio and television across America, indeed around the world. That's the version of the gospel that many missionaries used to define effectiveness, that many theologians used to define faithfulness, and that many Christians and non-Christians alike used to define Christianity itself. Given how deeply rooted this understanding of the gospel is, especially in evangelical, charismatic, and even some Roman Catholic circles, it's no wonder that I couldn't imagine questioning it for most of my life. Penal substitutionary atonement was the heart of the gospel. The whole system of Christianity would be frivolous, meaningless, or ridiculous without it, or or so I thought. It's endemic in who we are. And it's this notion that Jesus died on the cross to appease a wrathful God for the sins of humanity. It's not new. It's been something that's been a part of Christianity forever. But the notion is is, is that Jesus was born specifically to suffer, to be tortured and die on the cross, so that that would, would be a satisfaction. That would be that which would satisfy a bloodlusting God for all the sins that humanity humanity had committed. The purpose for Jesus was his death on the cross. That nothing in the world could appease this angry God other than the fact that, that his only son, as it was described in this theory, his only son had to die, and in that death there would be release for everybody else. The only purpose for this baby to be born, was for this man to die on the cross. That God could not be, be placated in any other way. That God, in, in, in God's way of thinking, that all that could happen is, is this, that there had to be this bloody death of one dear to God in order for God to be able to free humanity from the sinfulness that is inherent in all of us. Augustine talked about that in the 4th century, talking about that sense of, of original sin that we are steeped in sin, that we are born in sin, and the only thing that can alleviate that sin is, is this bloody, torturous death of someone dear to God. And how abhorrent is that? I mean, how, how, how hard is it for us to even possibly imagine that that, that that could be a vision of anything or anybody, let alone a loving God? You know, we didn't start this idea. This idea went way long before Christianity. In, in pagan religions, there were bloody sacrifices all the time. And in Judaism, there were sacrifices as well. We, we sort of assumed this idea. But didn't we bring it to, to a, a whole new level? That, that, that we lived in, in this, this state of, of, of abject terror until somebody had to die for us, and that somebody was God's only son. 
what, what McLaren is saying, and, and what I want to express to you this morning, is, is that that is, is a, a decrepit and a defunct idea. And we don't need to assume that any longer. Where that was once the very center of Christianity, we no longer have to consider that to be part of who we are. I don't know if you've noticed, but here we, we have worked subtly but carefully to try to, to, to change the language. We no longer say Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us at the Eucharist anymore. We say something very different. What do we say? I know. It's in your, we'll get there. When we get there, we'll tell you. It's in your, it's in your, it's in your, I forgot. It's in your, it's in your leaflet. The living bread is broken for the life of the world. Now we've changed that from that very language about sacrifice. And the reason that we've changed that is because we, I want to, we wanted to change the conversation. From, from this sense of an angry God who needs to be appeased with Jesus' blood to a loving God who wants to accept all humanity as humanity is. Now, John, this is, this is the, the essence of John's gospel, John the theologian. And we hear it this morning. We heard it in our hymn, but we heard it more importantly in, in this reading that we had from the 12th chapter of John. At the very end of, of the chapter, John talks about Jesus as being lifted up. John talks a lot about Jesus being lifted up. And what John loved to do is he loved to go back into the, to the Jewish Testament to, to pull images to use about Jesus. Remember two weeks ago we had a reading out of the Old Testament, maybe the book of Numbers, about how, how Moses healed the people who had been bitten by the poisonous snakes because he lifted up, he lifted up on, on this staff the image of a bronze snake. And then when he lifted this, this, this staff up, what happened was the people who gazed upon that bronze serpent were healed from the poison from the, poison from the snakes. <coughs> this is an image that John gets about Jesus being lifted up. Not being lifted up because he has to appease a bloodthirsty God, but because it's about healing. That those who look upon Jesus being lifted up upon the cross is exactly like those who see the, the, the serpent lifted up upon the staff. It's a symbol of healing. We call it the caduceus, right? I mean, that's what doctors wear on their lapels. It's the serpent wrapped around a staff, much like a cross. That's the image that John has when he talks about Jesus being lifted up, lifted up to be glorified, but lifted up even more importantly on the cross. The cross is about healing. The cross isn't about payment for sin. The cross isn't about punishing Jesus. The cross is about Jesus opening his arms wide enough to be able to accept all humanity in that sense of love and healing. It's a whole different idea. Jesus is lifted up as a human being so that, that healing can take place, much as Moses lifted up the staff for the people of Israel. And just as the people of Israel were, were recalcitrant and were obstetrous and, and fought against Moses, humanity fights against this concept of God being so loving... That God would want to heal all of our infirmities, spiritual and otherwise. That God's purpose in Jesus' life was not his death, but his life. That Jesus' incarnational form, Jesus became human to share with us our humanity, not so that Jesus could die on the cross and so that God could be appeased and everything would be made right. 
Jesus was born to be a human being, not to be a sacrificial lamb. This, this, this talk we, we hear all the time, washed in the blood of the lamb, uh, um, it's, just, it's just a bunch of hogwash. It really is. And, and it, it's been there for over 2,000 years to keep powerful in power, po- the, the powerful and powerful places and to terrorize the rest of humanity. And it's not true. So, so, so what is this impetus for God to so love humanity that God wanted to become human? And that's the way I see it, is that, that God had this impulse to become human. How could that possibly happen? Why would God possibly do that? Because God loved humanity so much, loved us so much. That God had this, this, this desire, this incredible desire to become human, to be one of us, to fully engage God's own self into what it is to be human, and to love, and to suffer, and to feel pain. The image that I have when I was thinking about how to explain this to you um, goes from my childhood as well. When I was little, I loved to fish. I still do. We were living in Situate, Massachusetts, and on my way to school, there was a tackle store, a, a, a sporting goods store. <coughs> it had fishing tackle in it. And there was, a, there was a reel, you know, that goes on a rod and reel. There was a reel that was made by the Shakespeare Company, and I think it was even gold in color. And I, I lusted after that reel. I mean, I, I would walk by that store, and I would slow down every day on the way to school just looking at that reel. And then one week I stopped and just stood there at the window, looked at the wheel, and two weeks later I found myself in the store getting a little closer in front of the case looking at the reel. And a month later I, I found myself asking the man behind the counter, could I, could I hold the reel? And, and two weeks after that I spent all my, my allowance for the next three years, I think, in buying that reel because I had grown to want it so much, to desire it so much, to love it so much that I had to have it, I had to hold it. It had to be part of me. That's the way God feels about humanity. That God created human beings to, to be in relationship, to be in love with God, and that love just grew deeper and deeper and deeper. I know, I'm anthropomorphizing God. God, the mysterious God, doesn't want a reel to put on his fishing pole. I know that. But do you get the metaphor? I, I believe that God loves humanity that much that God had to be human. That's the impulse behind Jesus' life. Not his death. Not suffering. Not torture. The, the obscenity of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, that everybody ran to a couple of years ago. Do you remember that? Do you remember going to see that? I, I had to go see that because I felt I had to be able to talk about it. The obscenity about that movie was all about violence. Violence and blood, that, that God had to have this bloody, violent act happen. And it's so wrong. When we go into to, to what we call Holy Week, when we begin to read some of those stories, and, 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 and a lot of, of our story, a lot of our literature, talks about, about, about passion and, and talks about sacrifice, this sort of penal substitutionary atonement theory is full in our prayer book and, and, and even in some of the scriptures that we read. But remember our conversation this morning. It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to think about Jesus' life and Jesus' death as some kind of, of bloody appeasement to an angry God who, who is distant and who wants nothing more than, than, than to, to, to see his own beloved suffer. Because that's exactly wrong. It's exactly opposite. God wants to see God's beloved 
in joy and in wholeness and in health. Love God back and, and love this amazing creation that God made. So this kind of thinking many people call relative. They call it easy, cheap grace. But there's another part of what we're talking about here, and, and that's that Jesus did die on the cross. But it wasn't God who put Jesus on the cross. It was humanity that put Jesus on the cross. It was us who put Jesus on the cross. And, and to realize that, to realize that there is a dark side in each and every one of us, and that humanity has this capacity for theological term sin, that's part of the story as well. And that we have to realize is, is, that, is that as the Roman Empire was complicit in Jesus' torture and death, we are complicit too. That there are things that we allow to have happen with that same kind of, of retributive justice. That, that how we treat prisoners in jail, how, how we, we treat immigrants in our country, how, how we treat other people. There's a dark side to us as well. What happened in Germany in the 1940s? What happened in Rwanda in the 1980s? That's a dark side of humanity that is willing to see others suffer and do nothing about it. And if it doesn't engender compassion and humility in us, if understanding that, that Jesus is suffering on the cross is, is in large part our responsibility, if we don't understand that, then we will not have that compassion and that humility to understand that we too are broken and that we too need to be healed, and Jesus was lifted up on the cross for our healing, for us, that we may see life in a different way. So it, it's not just God wanting to love us, it's us responding to that love in such a way that brings the best out of us and helps us to understand that, that we all have that dark peace in us as well and that we have to fall down on our very knees and, and, and thank God for our being, but also to pray to God that we can some way understand how our brokenness affects the life around us. It's those who are so sure that they are not broken, those who are so sure that there is not a darkness in, our li in their lives that creates the pain and the suffering that happens. When, when, when those human beings in that terrible darkness murdered the, those, those men on the beach, those Christian Syrian men on the beach, what did they say? They, they, they said that, 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 it, that they were, it, was, it was the bloody retribution for the people of the cross. They got it all wrong. The cross wasn't about bloody retribution. But there in their, in their insulation, in their inability to see their own brokenness and their own humanity and, and their own darkness, all that they could see was is that they were emulating something that didn't happen. It's that kind of understanding of, of, of not being human, not being broken, that creates this gulf between humanity, between us and them, continually. And that's the other side of Jesus being on the cross. How do we understand our own place in the world around us? And how can we, with humility, ask for forgiveness, but also ask for the strength to become less broken and more whole? I have to see the crucifixion this way. I have to see it as being an affirmation and not a negation. I have to see it as an invitation to become more whole myself. One last story. And maybe I've told you this story before, 
But, but one of the real blessings about being my age is I can tell you the same story twice. But not being any older, I don't forget that I didn't tell you the same story twice. So anyway, um, it's another family story. My, my son, Evan, was probably four. Uh, it was my brother's wedding in a Roman Catholic church. And Evan was all dressed up in his, his four-year-old finery. He had a beautiful green jacket on and green shorts with suspenders and white knee socks and beautiful brown little shoes. And, and we marched very proudly into this Roman Catholic church for this wedding. We were down about the fifth row back. It was May. It was beautiful. We, we all get settled in our pew, and Evan looks up at four, and he says really loud, that poor baby Jesus because he looked upon the crucifix that is so often in Roman Catholic churches. And there was the image of a tortured, bleeding, suffering man. And for this four-year-old, it had only been a blink of an eye from the crash of, of, of the Christmas season to seeing this mangled man on the cross. He was smart enough to know who it was, but could not at all understand that transition. How could that possibly be the same person? And why would anybody show that? That four-year-old had this, this, this image in his mind of Jesus as being loving and accepting and beautiful, not mangled and tortured and suffering. How can we begin to see our lives and Jesus in our lives the way that Evan saw that baby lying in the crash and not that poor, tortured human being? I think that's the challenge, and I think thinking about about Jesus being lifted up in this next two weeks may help us understand even more fully the beauty of the resurrection, the beauty of the wholeness that is the promise, that complete joy that is held out before us in you. Please stand and affirm your faith as I affirm mine in the words of the Nicene Creed.